this past week was our vacation Bible school. And we had the opportunity to look in God's Word every single night. We heard Bible verses. We received uh, Bible points. And for the boys and girls in here, and for those who worked, you thought you were done with this, so I'm going to ask it for one more Sunday to see if you remember how to respond. But God knows you. Eureka. God hears you. God comforts you. God forgives you. And God chooses you. It is a remarkable thing to be in the room with a child when they hear a story from the Bible for the very first time. I don't know if you've ever had that opportunity or if you were able to watch their eyes see the expression on their face when they hear a biblical truth and when it comes to life. But they're captivated by the Word of God. They're drawn in to the truths that it holds. And it's been a privilege that I've had for many years at this point to be able to teach and to work with boys and girls, with children. Not just at this church. Um, in schools, I drive a school bus and... There's a great need for the gospel on a school bus. There is a great need to be able to share biblical truths with boys and girls. And families, throughout friendships, and all over. And the reaction is the same. Boys and girls, children, when they hear the truth, they don't respond with the calluses that adults respond with. They don't treat the sayings that you give to them with contempt or with scoffing. They hear the Word of God, they hear the biblical truth, and they respond knowing that it's real. It's something unique and something blessed to be able to communicate those things with children. I call it aha moments when a kid hears something for the first time and they connect a dot and it's just written all over their faces. Oh, I get it. Something makes sense. Something that before might have been blurred or unclear all of a sudden, the truth has awakened a reality that was, at one point, not known to them. And they get an aha moment. It's written all over their face. It's in their eyes. After VBS, perhaps I need to call it a eureka moment. D.L. Moody, who worked all of his life in the city of Chicago, all of his ministry, for the most part, was poured into the city of Chicago, he diligently served the men and women there. There are stories that are vast about some of his 
experiences and encounters. Little is known about much of his life before he just seems to pop up on the scene as this unyielding evangelist. But one such story is that he walked up to a homeless man who was living on the street and sleeping on the street, walks up to him, grabs him and says, I need you to take me, I need you to teach me how to minister to homeless people. This is a man who didn't have more than a fifth grade level education. He started the Moody Bible Institute. He trained pastors, taught them the word of God. He was not a brilliant scholar or a learned theologian. In fact, you very rarely see quotes from D.L. Moody. But this is a man who poured his life into the city of Chicago. And this is a man who dedicated his service to people and At the end of his time, at the end of his ministry, when he knew things were winding down, we do have this quote from him. He said, if I could relive my life, I would devote my entire ministry to reaching children for God. And the text that we're going to be looking in in just a moment highlights so much of the realities of the blessings it is to know children and to be there with children and to enjoy them as part of God's kingdom. And so this morning... There is no outline. I don't have bullet points. I don't have anything like that for you to follow. Rather, because these are familiar verses and because it's so easy, particularly for whatever reason, we come to these verses, whether it's in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and we just blow by them. And we just tend to categorize them over here as, well, yeah, Jesus likes kids. And that seems to be all we do with it. Instead of just outlining it and treating it like we would a normal sermon, I want to take us into that story. I want us to feel the context of what's going on. I want us to be gripped with the emotion that Christ had when He's approached the way the disciples approach Him. And I want us to get the sense that we're in that moment. Because it's in that moment, it's knowing the context and it's knowing the scenario that we feel the weight of what Christ is saying. So let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into the text. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I do love you and praise you. And Father, we know that we've had... uh, vacation Bible school this past week and truly your word was put on display. Boys and girls sang the words of your scripture. They heard the stories that 
your word contains. They were pointed to your son. Father, they were told the gospel. And Lord, we know that because of passages like this, the efforts and the work and all the energy and all the tiredness we may feel this morning because of the work we've done was not done in vain. That God, you have prepared this work, the work of ministering to children as a blessed part of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning as we go to your scripture, that Father, we be convicted where we need that, that Lord, there'd be repentance where it's necessary, and that Father, there'd be a passion, a longing, and a growth to go and to be at work for your kingdom. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, I ask these things and for his sake. Amen. So let's read our scripture today. We're in Mark chapter 10. Let me read verses 13 through 16 as you follow along in your Bibles. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them. These are familiar verses. Likely we've heard them time and time again. And like I said before, likely we've glossed over them time and time again. But this is such an important, important narrative, such an important section of verses that it's included in all three of the synoptic Gospels. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, you get the same story. It's just Matthew's account of it. In Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, you get the same story. It's just Luke's account of it. The gospel writers recognize something in this small little section of Scripture that's not meant to just be blown through, not just meant to be passed by and think, well, that's a charming little story and, and Jesus likes kids. That's not the end of it. There's so much more there. And we won't have time this morning to, to jump into all of it just because there's so much in the context that, that feeds our understanding of what's going on. But I'll try to take us a little bit to the context today in our time that we have just to let you know this is the second time that Mark has recorded that our Lord uses children to teach the disciples in the, in the past two chapters. In chapter 9, he does it. And here in chapter 10, he does it. Back to back, you see that the Lord uses children to teach the disciples a lesson. Let me read to you in Mark chapter 9. I'll read verses 33 through 37, so you'll see how the Lord has used children before. So you get kind of a context that he's, he's starting to turn their eyes to awaken their knowledge that there's something here you need to grasp. They came to Capernaum and 
when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all the servants of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. He's using children there. He's using children in chapter 10. And in both of these contexts, in both of these stories, he's in a house. He's with a smaller number of people. These are not with the great crowds. This is in a smaller group of people. He's with his disciples. And in both times, in both instances, a child is used to humble the disciples. To humble the proud and the haughty attitudes that they may have. Now, I said when the child was used, it was in the house in both of those instances, and that is true. But in between the story in chapter 9 and the story in chapter 10, there is this moment where Jesus is teaching the crowds. And the Pharisees are in the midst of them. And the Pharisees decide that they're going to test Jesus, that they're, gonna, they're not looking to trap him, so much, I don't think, here, as much as they're looking to get him to choose a side. At the time, there were, were some differences in understanding um, about what it means or, or why a person could be divorced or why a person could, uh, could separate from their spouse. There were differences of opinions. There were some that were far, uh, far more strict, some that were far more lenient. And I think they were trying to get Jesus to pick a side and so, in chapter 10, the Pharisees are a part of it. They come up there. They come to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answers them. He doesn't pick a side. He doesn't pick the side of this Pharisaical, Pharisaical group or this one over here. Instead, he just takes them to the Scripture and he says, Look, God has created man and woman, male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever God has joined together, let not man separate. He takes him to the Scripture. He doesn't play the ball game that the Pharisees try to take him into. But it's in the house. After all this confrontation, after this testing, the disciples sit down with Jesus and, and they want to go further. So Jesus takes the Pharisees and the crowds to the Scripture and the disciples in the house ask Him again about that matter, about divorce and remarriage. And He answers them there. And it's in the middle of that discussion, while He's in the house with the disciples and maybe they're really starting to to get into this, this time with him. And they're starting to maybe make progress or headway and the Lord is explaining things to them that are difficult for them to understand and they are not maybe grasping it or maybe 
they grasp it and they're even getting a little cynical. In fact, Matthew, his account in chapter 19 kind of leads us to believe maybe they are getting a little cynical about what Jesus says. Let me read it to you. You, You've got to have some guts to say this to the Lord. Maybe in the way that they were saying it. But Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, they're in the house. Jesus is teaching them. He's clarifying what he would not clarify with the Pharisees. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So you get the sense that maybe even the disciples are are not receiving the teaching or maybe they're still working and they're still grinding through the teaching. And it's in the middle of that when they're pouring into it that we get this story and they were bringing children to Him. Now I know, like many of you do, what it's like to be talking with another adult and to be engaged in maybe a discussion that is on the more serious matter and for a child to walk up and to start talking about a cartoon that they've watched or look at what I can do and it's, it's not as remarkable as they tend to think it is. And in that moment, it's a very easy thing. It's a very natural thing to look at that child and say, stop, 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 go away, and to dismiss the child. And so as the disciples are in the middle of this discussion with the Lord, and they might even be getting cynical with the Lord over the teaching, These parents come up. But what they're doing is not something that's frivolous. What they're doing is not something that's just, look at what I can do. They are looking to Christ for something that's good. But just like how we will sometimes dismiss a child because we don't think that what they have or what they want is as important as what we've got going on, the disciples feel the same sense. And so, the parents start bringing children. Now, the word here in Mark's account, they're bringing children. But these are not, these are not children, 8, 9, 10, into teenagers. These are infants. And we, we get that sense from later on in verse 16. It says, and he took them in his arms and blessed them. You don't do that with a teenager. None of them, I don't care how tiny they are. You don't take a teenager in your arms. You don't take a a child that's 11 years old in your arms, especially if it's not theirs. But we get a further clue in Luke 18 in the account that he's writing the same story. And he says the word he uses is infants. He says, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. These are babies that are being brought to Jesus. 
little ones. The Greek term could even go so far as, as those that are still nursing, and since they would have done that for far longer than we do it in our time, in our culture, these could have been children that are uh, two, that are walking and, 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 and have the opportunity to kind of get into a, a scenario and to jump in. So they're bringing babies, infants, to the Lord. And the disciples in this moment see those children and see what the parents are doing as a distraction. And they rebuke them. And that word rebuke, they chastise them. The term in Greek can even go so far as to say they're punishing them. They're really letting these parents have it. So what were the parents doing? Were they coming in and were they doing something that was a distraction? Should they have just stayed out of the house and let the Lord continue his teaching with the disciples? To understand if they should have remained outside or if it was good for them to go in, we need to understand what they were doing at the time during when this was written. It was very customary that Jewish parents would take their children to rabbis and they would take them to the elders in the synagogues. And they would take those infants, they would take those children, and they would give that baby to an elder there. And they would ask that elder to pray for their child and would ask for them to pray to bless their child. And that elder would take the baby in his arms and he would pray and then he would pass the child on to another elder and the baby would make its way through the synagogue and it would be prayed for by all those who at the time would certainly have been seemed seemed to be closer to the Lord or to know the things to pray for for this child. One of the most popular prayers that these elders would pray, that these rabbis would say was, be famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and abundant in good works. Now Jesus was talking about family. He was talking about marriage. He was talking about marrying and divorce. He was certainly in the context of family. It's in the context of family and marriage that Jesus has spoke with the Pharisees. He's talking about that with the disciples. So to the parents, as they're hearing that this is what's been talked about, this is what's being spoken of by this teacher, Jesus, by the Lord, it was a natural thing to think, well then, let me take a part of my family to him. Let this rabbi, let this teacher pray for them. It goes a little deeper than that. It wasn't just something that they did on a random Tuesday. There, were in, there was intentionality to this. The most common time for parents to take their child to an elder to be prayed for was during the time of Yom Kippur. It was actually the day before. Uh, that term might hold significance for some in here. It might be a new one for others. The term Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the day when the high priest 
would go before the Ark of the Covenant and he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant and it was known far and wide that the sacrifice that was offered that day on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice that was given then, that it was to remove the sins of the land of Israel, that it was to bring salvation and grace to the land of Israel for an entire year. And so the day before Yom Kippur, the parents would take their children into the synagogue. They would take their children into the temple to be prayed for by the elders. And this was the nature of the prayer. When they would walk in, when they would hand their child to that elder, it was with an understanding that tomorrow the sins of the land are going to be forgiven for a year and there is nothing about my child, there is nothing about my baby, there is nothing about this son or daughter of mine that there is nothing in them where they can join in this. They cannot offer to God... A prayer of repentance. They cannot offer to God a sacrifice. They cannot offer to God anything that at the time they recognized was a means of grace for God. And so what they were doing when they took their children in there, they were saying, elder or rabbi, I want you to pray for my child that the grace of God would be upon my child for the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to pray that the grace of God would be upon my child for salvation. Because apart from sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sins and there is no salvation. They recognized that as they took their babies into pray. Now, we don't know necessarily what these parents were expecting to hear from Jesus. We don't know if he was going to, if they were expecting him to pray the most popular prayer at the time, be famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and abundant in good works. Or if they recognized that this man, Jesus, is the Savior, and we know that only the grace of God can come through the Messiah and we want the Messiah to pray for our child. But either way, they understood that the baby, this infant, could not pray and ask for their sins to be forgiven. They could not pray for the grace of God. They knew that their faith, that their repentance, could never stand for their child. And so here they are bringing their babies to Jesus. It's not quite the same as a child walking up and saying, you want to play a game with me at this intense discussion time or do you want to watch what I can do? No, these parents are asking something that is good and it's blessed and it's right. And Christ has been talking about the family. And it's a natural thing for them to do. But as they go in there and as the disciples are in this mode that we're in a time of discussion and we're in a time where our maybe study is getting deeper and, and maybe we're making headway. Once they see these parents walk into this house and they're looking to have Jesus pray for them, they rebuke the parents. 
Can't you see we're in the middle of a discussion? Can't you see that we're doing something more important? Can't you see that we don't have time for these children? We don't have time for your babies. Jesus is occupied. And like I said, this is not just them saying, no, 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 stop, come back a different time. It's not a benevolent, hey, this is not the right time. It's a, it's a chastising. There's an implication that they are stinging them with their words, that they are rebuking them and punishing them with their words. The disciples are blinded by pride. And they can't see that the parents desire something more than talk. They desire their children to be blessed. And they desire their children to know the grace of God. Now let me pause there and let me say this, that there's not a parent in this room who should ever say that longing for their child to be blessed and longing for the grace of God to be upon their child, there's no parent who should ever say that's a wrong thing. There's no parent in here that should ever say that there's a bad time to want that and that there's a bad time to seek that out. There's no parent in this room who would ever honestly say that a child receiving blessing from God and grace from God, that's never an inconvenient thing. We always should be striving for our children to know those things. But the disciples were clouded in their judgment. And they needed to be humbled. You remember when the Lord used a child in the previous chapter to humble the disciples? It was because they were arguing who is the greatest? Who is the best among us, Jesus? And Jesus took a child and he humbled them because their pride got in the way of seeing the beauty that the kingdom of God is not about us. It's not about what we can accomplish. It's not about the eyes being on us. But that the kingdom of God, the gospel and following after Christ is about Jesus. It's about Him. So he used a child to humble them there. And here, in the same moment, when pride has gotten in the way and when they cannot understand, when they will not see the greater and the larger picture, Christ is about to use a child again. And Christ's indignation matches the disciples' rebuke. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So let me explain the Lord's words here. And let me take just a few moments to break down what I think he's trying to get at. There's a threefold part here. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. So let the children come to me is the statement that yes, Christ does love children. Yes, Christ will bless children. Yes, Children are a part of the kingdom of God. There is a love there for them. Now, I want to be careful. I want to make sure that we don't mingle Christ's love for children the way that we mingle Christ's or our love for children. 
I don't know if you do this or if it's just me, but every time I walk up to a baby, I don't talk to that baby the way I talk to you. It's embarrassing to think that I could walk up to an adult and say, how you doing, little guy? That's a sentimentality that is, I hope, not just common with me. I will make a face at a child that I will never make at a grown adult. That's a sentimentality that is good, and it's fun, and it's a desirable thing. But the reality is, is I don't want you to think that, that, that Jesus' love for these children is at mere sentiment. Jesus wasn't just sentimental about children. He recognized that children needed grace. They needed their sins to be forgiven. A very interesting passage. If you want, you can flip there. It's Matthew 11. A very interesting passage about Jesus in regards to how he viewed children is in Matthew 11. And it's in the section, it's um, verses 16 and 17. It's when messengers from John the Baptist come and they're, they're asking, oh, Jesus, are you really the Savior? Are you really the, the one who we've been waiting for? And Jesus answers, not so much in word, but in deed. And he says, I'll begin in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who has come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then here it is. He says, but, but to what shall I compare this generation? In other words, they don't have ears to hear. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. What, is that, what do those verses mean? It's just simply that in the marketplace, children would play. And in the marketplace, children would play, and they would act out things that they saw regularly. And the biggest events, the biggest part of their parents' life or the life of their community would be when someone got married or when there was a funeral. And so they would play marriage and they would play funeral. They would play those games. A little different than cowboys and Indians, but those are the games that they might play. And what Jesus is saying here is he's making an allusion to the stubbornness of the generation he equates it to the stubbornness of children. And we all have seen this before. He says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We played marriage. We played the game marriage. And you didn't come to play. You wouldn't come and play and dance then. And then we sang a dirge. We played funeral. And you did not mourn. You wouldn't play the games with us no matter what we played. And all of us understand the stubbornness of a child who will sit there and no. No. My brother, when he was little, he, because he's dramatic, he wouldn't just say no, and Dad can testify to this, he would say, no! 
he made sure you realized it was spelled with an N and an O. My son is much like him. We understand the stubbornness of children. Jesus didn't look at, at children just with this simple sentimentality, just with this simple, oh, aren't they cute? Don't, don't tell them to go away. They're cute. Let them come in. It's not that. It's not this kind of thing. Jesus recognized that there was a stubbornness even in children. He recognized there was a sinfulness even in children. He recognized that they were born under the curse of Adam. He recognized that these children needed the grace of God and they needed the forgiveness of sins. So it's not just a simple, oh, they're, they're cute. Let them come in. Far too often we chalk this story up to that. No, his love is deeper than that. He recognizes they need grace. They need forgiveness. And that those children belong to him. He tells us that such belong, such, to such belong the kingdom of God. They belong to him. He's created them. They are His. He loves them. Let the children come to Me. I love them. Do not hinder them. He wants them to hear. He wants them to be in the middle of these discussions. He doesn't want them just because they're children to be banished to the outside. He doesn't want them to wait until the serious talk is over. Rather, it's in the middle of the serious talk when the parents are bringing them to them and he says, bring them in. Get them in here. They need to know the Word of God impacts every single facet of your life, whether it's the family and marriage and divorce, whether it's the grace of God and, and forgiveness of sins. Bring them in. Let them hear it. Don't wait until they're old enough to understand or to comprehend because at that point they'll never, ever desire it or want it. They'll never be able to grasp foundational truths without having to work so hard to regain the ground they could have had while they were children. I've heard several people who came to know Christ later on in their life who said, in lamenting, oh, how I wish I had known these things when I was younger. Bring the children in. I love them. Do not hinder them. Make them a part of the study. Make them a part of the blessings. Make them a part of these moments. And it really does cause me to be very happy when I look around and I see children as a part of our services. And parents sitting beside them to guide and direct. Children can handle so much more than we give them credit for. Children can handle, de handle deeper theology than adults. I am convinced of that because I've been teaching children and adults for a while now. Children can understand it better than adults and they receive it and they believe it. So, let them come do not hinder them. And then he says something that's, that's remarkable. And this is a particular comfort to me. He says, For to such 
belongs the kingdom of God. Now understand this, that child, that baby, there was no faith that they could place in the Son of God. There was no mental capacity for them to understand who was holding them in their arms. But they belonged to the kingdom of God. So we have to understand if they belong to the kingdom of God, it's not according to their faith. It's not according to their parents' faith. It's not according to baptism. It's not according to any such thing as that. It's not according to the fact that, that well, they're just cute and they're sweet. Remember, Christ is already, we looked at Matthew 11, He's gone away with the sentimentality there. Why would those children who cannot exercise faith and whose parents' faith can do them no good, why is it that they would belong to the kingdom of God? Understand, he he doesn't say, he, he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He doesn't say to these belong the kingdom of God. If he was saying to these belong the kingdom of God, You might say, well, he's talking about just a specific group of kids that are being brought to him. He says, for to such. It's a category of children and babies. It is my conviction that because of the grace of God, because of the goodness of God, that children who aren't even able to understand who it was who created them, who aren't even able to understand who it is who can provide salvation for them. That children have a means of grace upon them and that they belong to the kingdom of God before they can exercise faith. This is a point of debate and it's a point of uh, contention in some circles. But it is my conviction that Christ is saying here that these children, that these babies and such like them belong to the kingdom of God. That there is grace and that there is salvation and that there is is eternity for them. This is confirmed, I think, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. I'll read it to you. But it's after... David has lost a child. He lost a child uh, that was born um, to his wife Bathsheba. He wasn't his wife yet, but she became his wife. In iniquity, this child was born. And when the child was still struggling for life, he was weeping, he was fasting. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he's told that the child has passed, the child has died. In verse 22 to 23, he says, He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me saying there that there is a grace for this child, that this child 
has been taken up. He belongs to the kingdom of God. Even though he couldn't place his faith in him yet, even though he could not make a mental understanding of his need for salvation, there was a grace for him. That's a comfort for me. Many of you know that Chris and I have lost a child. It's a comfort for me. It's a comfort for for those who've lost children. It's a comfort to know that even though there is wicked and evil and rampant uh, abortions in this country and there's wickedness and there's evil men and women who will hurt and will kill children, that there is a grace of God even in those moments. But it's not a sentimentality. It's not a, oh, of course, that cute baby, that, court, that cute child, of course, of course they can go to heaven. But he's pointing them to the fact that there is a grace there. That there is a, that there is a salvation for them, and it's not through any other means other than through Christ himself. Remember what the parents would do before Yom Kippur, they would take their children because they realized their children needed the grace of God. Their children needed their sins forgiven. Babies cannot work. They are the ultimate illustration for humility with these disciples They can do no work. They cannot join in the discussion. They cannot in any way, shape, form, or fashion do anything to display obedience. And yet they belong to the kingdom of God. And then it says he took them in his arms, blessed them, laying his hands on them. And you see that in this moment... The desire to bring children to an understanding of Christ, to bring your child to a knowledge of Him, is always, or should always be, the desire and the heart for parents. That I want them to receive grace and blessing from Jesus. Even though that child can do no work, to display obedience, even though they cannot understand who it is they're talking to or the faith that they need or the salvation that's provided, they need to be introduced to Jesus. Now, I would be remiss in my duties, I think, if I didn't take just a little bit further and explain this. Why is this such a humbling thing for the disciples? Because a child is not rebuked in that moment, but these disciples are rebuked. That is certainly a humbling thing. But it goes further than that. And this this was, if you want to talk about aha moments or uh, eureka moment, this is one that happened for me while studying this passage. Because as I've told you, in all three of the synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story is spoken of. In all three of them, we see that the Lord takes a child in His arms, blesses this child, and says that this child, 
this one who can do no works, this one who can show no understanding, who can make no verbal confession, this child who can do nothing to earn the grace that he's been given. This child belongs to the kingdom of God. All three of the synoptic gospels make sure to include this story and then immediately after it, in every single one of the synoptic gospels, after you see a child who can do no work, after you see a child who can do no Uh, no mental assent towards obedience or acknowledgement of the Savior, after you see that, you roll right into the story of the rich young man. And why is that significant? Why is that important? It's because, let me, I'm just going to read it to you. And let me see if, if as I read it to you, you can understand why it's so remarkable that immediately after the disciples have been humbled and they get told it's not by a work that you can do, it's not by some sort of faith that you can exercise that you belong to the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, such as these children, such as these babies who can do nothing. And then we get verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Stop reading there. The reason why in all three of the synoptic gospels you have this Illustration that Christ provides his disciples with a child belonging to the kingdom of God. And then immediately after it, you've got this rich young man who walks away disheartened because he doesn't. Is because in a child, there is a complete and total reliance on the grace of God. And in this rich young man, there's a complete and total reliance on his own works. And you need to understand something now church that if you are sitting in this room and if you have made the critical mistake of relying on your attendance here this morning or your working in VBS last week or your attendance all throughout your life or praying a prayer or you're reading your Bible if you have made your salvation about what you can do then you are just like the rich young man who will walk away disheartened at the end of the story because you do not belong to the kingdom of God you need to understand that in order to be a part of the kingdom of God it belongs to such as these children who recognize that I am bankrupt before the Lord I have no works I have no obedience that will count towards my righteousness, but I have a God who has sent His Son. His Son's name is Jesus, and He will take me up in His arms, and He will give me grace, not by my merit, but because of His working on the cross to provide me for salvation. That is where we must put our hope and our faith.
not in our works, not in the strength or the might of our hands, but we must recognize, like the disciples, we need to be humbled. And we need to come to Christ like children who understand I'm bankrupt. But there is a grace for me that I cannot achieve. There is a salvation for me that I cannot work to attain that is found only in one man and his name is Jesus the Christ. What a comparison. What a contrast. What an opportunity to tell children that you cannot be good enough, but you have one who is. And He provides grace and salvation. What an opportunity to tell adults you cannot be good enough, but there is one who is. And He provides grace. He provides salvation. Let us be humbled this morning. Let us exalt Christ this morning. And let us leave here ready continuing to do the work in our communities, in our families, in our jobs, in our schools, wherever we may go. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. We do praise you. And we thank you, God, for the gift of your word. We thank you, God, for a grace that is given that we don't deserve, but that is achieved because of the goodness, the righteousness, the sacrifice of Christ. I thank you, God, that we can look at passages like these and we can exalt our Savior all the more. I thank you that we can look at passages like these and we can know that as parents, as leaders in churches, that, Father, you bless the work of telling children the truth of the gospel. And, Father, I ask that if there's a child here who's heard the gospel, who is interested in asking questions, that they would ask their parents those questions, and, Father, that you'd bring a measure of uncomfort until they're ready to share the gospel. I pray that if there's an adult here who doesn't know you, who's been pricked, maybe they've relied on their own achievements or their own works, that, Father, you would create a level of uncomfortableness until they seek your Son, until they want to turn from their sins and pursue obedience to your commands. And it's in your Son's name, Jesus, I do ask these things and for His sake. Amen.